I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. All those of you who've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Welcome to the Swing 2020. In the most uncertain year in modern history, the only predictable thing about American politics is the unpredictable. This election is no horse race. Crisis management is on the ballot. It's the incumbent Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the White House. But this isn't just a vote for Commander-in-Chief. It's state houses, rural congressional districts, powerful governor's mansions, and bellwether Senate seats. It's prosecutors, sheriffs, and superintendents. And the results will reveal the pulse of the American people. The swing, searching for the heartbeat of a nation, is counting us down to November 3rd. Here are your hosts, Chris Baccia and Emmanuel Berbarin. We are 100 days out from Election Day 2020. That's November 3rd, 2020, just this fall and just around the corner. I'm Chris Baccia. He's Emmanuel Barbari. This is The Swing 2020, where we'll be looking at the swing states and the swing voters and trying to hash out and understand where America looks in 2020, what its future looks like as the voters decide on that pivotal first Tuesday of the month of November. At Emanuel, it comes against the backdrop of crisis in America. That's the coronavirus pandemic and race in America, things that have flared up in the last number of months and overtaken our conversations about politics that might normally be about some of the jockeying and and some of the political moves and decisions. Instead, this has become a very real and very existential election. You hit on a very important point, Chris, and that is that just four months ago, this was an entirely different political landscape. Now the candidates need to confront and address the twin crises in this country, the coronavirus pandemic that's still a very real problem affecting so many families, so many lives throughout the nation, Racial injustice in the wake of the George Floyd killing, that's created a lot of anxiety this summer and a lot of calls for change and a move forward in America. These candidates need to address, confront, and then surge past these crises. And whoever presents themselves in the best way possible to do so, going to come out on top in November. And certainly both camps are going to tackle these issues and and make them defining points in their campaign, which is how I will address this on whether it's Joe Biden's first day in office on January 20th, 2021, or Donald Trump in beginning his second term, um, which candidate offers, uh, which, which vision you're looking for in 2020 is certainly going to be how voters look. Only one candidate, only one camp has been empowered to handle, to contain the coronavirus. That is the president. He is, of course, in power. And if we look at the polling, which we're going to launch into right at the jump here, um, you'll find that voters don't very much approve of Donald Trump's job handling the coronavirus. That figure is 37 percent from NBC News Wall Street Journal poll as we hit the 100 day mark um, until Election Day. You look at that figure and it becomes clear as we look at strategy from 
both sides, that the president's camp is going to look to make this election about something other than his handling of the coronavirus. And, and, and that's plain in the numbers. On the other hand, Joe Biden is going to look at the pandemic and crisis in America. And by the way, America hit a grim number of 150,000 left dead by this pandemic. He's going to try to make this about reinstalling um, government that is at least functional, at least communicates uh, properly, dare I say normally, um, during a crisis. And and I, I think that is in large part the Biden pitch. And on the Donald Trump side, you're starting to see a slew of ads smearing the Joe Biden campaign as to say what Joe Biden's America would look like. And this is the case with any hotly contested presidential campaign. You're going to get these charges and claims towards the other side. The question is how the voters see America right now and whether their distaste and recent polling also indicates that near 75 to 80 percent of Americans are unhappy with the direction of the country right now, whether that distaste leads to change at all costs. Because while voters may not be enamored with either choice, while voters may not be enamored if you were in the Trump camp in 2016 voting and switching to Joe Biden, is this a change election? Is this a scenario where the current state of the country is a direct indictment on those in office? And that's something we could be headed towards in November. And and one thing that's for certain is that whereas in 2016, I, I and we're going to break this down quite a bit on our podcast series Whereas in 2016, I think voters um, went to the polls with cultural instincts. Um, there were things emotionally and, and culturally evoked in the two candidates for president in the last cycle um, that may have driven you to the polls to vote one way or the other, whether that was for the, potentially the first woman president in history or um, whether that was someone who had a, had a record of misogyny, had, had a record of... Um, quite the opposite of, of what an achievement would be. And not to make that election about just that one issue, it was certainly about far deeper things as well. But in 2020, there are very concrete, very existential, very perceivable things happening in America that you may be able to go vote on. And that's not to say that there weren't in 2016, but certainly to a larger measure in the era of a pandemic, which has not spared any life as far as how it's impacted us, how it's changed life. No one in America, frankly, no one in the world um, has been spared from the change and and the results, at times tragic results, of uh, this global pandemic. You know, and I, I think that's top of mind for voters this cycle, is what is actually happening in front of their eyes. In 2016, you mentioned those those emotional keys to pulling the lever for one of those candidates. And there was a severe, right. severe disconnect between what was felt maybe in New York on the coast of the country and in middle America. There were jobs sure. being lost. There were lives being changed for the worse. And you had people saying, oh, well, how could you vote for Donald Trump? How could you vote for this? How could you stand for this? And some people in the middle of the country were probably thinking, well, why are you going to tell me how to feel? Why, why are you going to tell me how I should vote? And I think a lot of that disconnect as to what was really happening in America, what was really happening with the economy, produced the landscape we have today. And uh, you, you hashed out a great point, Chris, in that 
the landscape right now is severely different than the landscape just a few months ago. This was a Donald Trump re-election campaign that was extremely confident four months ago. The economy was in a much better spot. Now you're dealing with crises that no one could have predicted for four years. The Democrats have been figuring out what's the number one priority, defeating Donald Trump. Defeating Donald Trump looks extremely different now than it ever did even since he took office. And and I think you you have some contrasting thoughts on conventional political wisdom, which the, the first thing that you know about, let's let's look at conventional political wisdom. Number one is that an incumbent is at an inherent advantage. That That's just true in the numbers. Only nine incumbent presidents have ever lost re-election in the history of the country. The most recent, George H.W. Bush, to the insurgent Arkansas governor, um, William Clinton, Bill Clinton. Now, that's the first piece. The second piece is that economy this week, people vote on their pocketbooks, right? That's probably advice number two. And economy this week and the figures aren't totally representative if you look at GDP or if you look at the stock market on a more macro level. But if you look at how Americans are really suffering at an economic level, um, and as soon as those unemployment checks begin to run out, I think this reality really sets in. And that brings an interesting question about the timing of that as it relates to November 3rd. But we know, and if you talk to any economist, real economic figures are going to tell you that there is suffering in America. So political wisdom would also tell you, well, an incumbent can't hold the office if his economy is that weak, if his people um, are that strapped um, for economic resources. We're talking about keeping the lights on and, and things of this nature. But then there's a third piece of conventional wisdom, Emmanuel, that I think is important, which is that wartime presidents, crisis-laden presidents are also at an advantage in their re-election campaign. No president vying for re-election has ever lost during a war. Now, this isn't a right. war. This is not a war, but um, it is a crisis. So does the president angle himself in that way, that I am your steward during crisis? Um, that was certainly his his attempt when at the earliest stages of this in his coronavirus briefings, he, can, he said, I consider myself a wartime president. And so, so I think you have three points there um, that you would know about political history, but that sort of contradict each other. And it, it would be very interesting to see how things play out. One thing I know for sure, and this is modern conventional political wisdom, is that the rule book is out the window with Donald Trump. We found that to be true in every Correct. step of his political ascent. Whatever he has said that in the past would have ended political careers has, in many cases, it has buoyed his political career. So that rule book is out the window. I think that's really important. And we talk about all this conventional wisdom. I can't take any of that really seriously in this cycle because you look at previous presidents, they were all very playbook-oriented, typical political figures. Donald Trump is the furthest thing we've ever seen from that. And he assumed the office saying and doing things that no one thought was possible. And that's why it took everyone by shock when he was ultimately able to overcome all of those odds and defeat Hillary Clinton back in 2016. So, yes, a lot playing against him right now, a lot playing against his camp. Do they, do they view Donald Trump as the person that can lead the country out of this crisis? He's going to tout how strong his economy was 
before the coronavirus pandemic. Does the country look towards that as the best possible figure to bring us back to that state? Or do they view it as, well, look at the country now. You're only as good as America is at the time of November 3rd. Is Joe Biden a viable option to bring us back to some sort of economic prowess? There are a lot of key questions that people really don't have the answers to. And a lot of it stems from that uncertainty of Donald Trump actually getting elected and assuming the office in 2016. I think you make a good point about the opponent, because um, if Americans assess weakness in the president's handling of crisis, which they do, and that's the 37 percent figure, that's his approval um, as it relates to his handling of COVID-19, the coronavirus crisis in America from the Wall Street Journal. With that assessment in mind, I, I also think it's important that voters look at the alternative, which is Vice President Biden, and that they assess in him a competence um, to to turn things around in America, which has been uh, struggling. There's no question um, when you align it with European and, and Asian countries who have had more success in combating the virus. L- let's look at some of the polling here, because I think this tells the story. We mentioned that 37 percent mm. number. I, the next number is, of course, the president's job rating, which is tracked on a, virtually on a daily basis. And right now it's average from and this comes from 538 politics is 40 percent. And that's that's a, a bit of a slide. At the end of March, it was 46 percent. In the middle of April, it was 44 percent. We're now close to August. And while it's been mostly steady, it's at that 40 percent figure. Um, which is far off from the 50% figure where you'd like to be. And you look at the dip, it's important to note that when he declared himself a wartime president, stood up there every day, coronavirus daily briefings on basically, with the exception of maybe 30 minutes here and there where the networks would cut out, on every major political network in America. He would be there every day you would see Donald Trump. He got a bump from that. He was going from... The steadiness of that 43, 44% in the early stages of his presidency to maybe 46, 47%. The real dip, and I'm not sure if there's a correlation here, when everything with George Floyd and the racial injustice happened, the Bible photo op, tear gassing protesters in front of the White House, his polling numbers have been at an all time low since then. He's dropped six or seven points and consistently ran eight to 10 points behind Joe Biden in every national poll. So I'm not sure if there's a correlation there, but. For a good two months now, you have not seen Donald Trump at the same standing as he's been for the entirety of his presidency, which was around the 44 to 45 percent sweet spot. And you look at the Biden-Trump figures, national polling, NBC Wall Street Journal again, 51 Biden-Trump 40. That's at our point right now, 100 days from the election. And that same poll finds 13 percent of voters undecided, which is not a high number, but it's also not a small number, it has the potential to swing this election. And that is certainly what we're looking at here on the swing. National polls across the board, Washington Post, ABC finds 10 points of daylight between the two, Biden 54, Trump 44, Quinnipiac 52, 37, but you still have Biden over that 50% mark. And the Fox News poll that just came out, 49, Biden 41, Trump, that's an eight-point differential. The national polls of course, um, are not the most important figures to look at. We don't vote um, by popular choice in America. We have an electoral college, which means we have to dive into the states 
And Emmanuel, if you dive into the states, you find similar results in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. Those are the battleground states. And Vice President Biden, in an average of recent polls, is leading across the board in those states. And we underscored that it's a different climate than four years ago. But it's important to note that four years ago, Donald Trump scraped by in these three crucial Midwest Rust Belt swing states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, by a total of 77,000 votes. That's what swayed the entire 2016 election. Hillary Clinton wins those three states. She's passed the 270 electoral vote threshold and wins the presidency. So those are the states for four years now the Democrats have targeted. It was a blue wall they'd created for 25, 30 years. They're trying to reestablish it. But there are more swing states than that, like you mentioned, in the fold for this election. And I think a lot of that has to do with the climate we find ourselves in, right? You have Arizona, which has been trending blue over the last decade, which is now completely up for grabs. North Carolina, Donald Trump won by two and a half percentage points back in 2016. That's a state Barack Obama carried. That is now in play. Florida's always in play, right? (laughs) Florida seems to be a crucial deciding point in any election. Joe Biden, that's arguably his strongest point so far in polling. He's had a consistent five to seven point lead in a state that's normally contested by three points, two points, one point. So if Joe Biden wins Florida, that essentially ends Donald Trump's presidency. Those are the six states that you focus in on. There are others that have been important in presidential cycles recently. Ohio, Iowa, new states into the fold this cycle. New polling out in Georgia is very good for Joe Biden this morning, has him up by two points. Texas, which has been a pipe dream for Democrats for so many years, it seems they finally have a fighting chance to flip that state. It may not be this cycle, but if they can get that within spitting distance, which all polling would indicate, they have Joe Biden essentially tied in a deadlock with Donald Trump. If that state is close, that ends Donald Trump's presidency. So there is a subset of swing states unlike we have ever seen in this cycle. But I would say six of them are utter toss-ups. And I I think it's early to examine these numbers and assume that you'll see the map break in this direction. I I would be absolutely stunned if Joe Biden won the state of Texas on November 3rd. That's not something we're anticipating. I wouldn't even anticipate it with Georgia and Georgia's 16 electoral votes, which I think Democrats are even more honed in on a Georgia than a Texas, but Texas is certainly a long-term prize for them. However, these figures, and you mentioned Texas plus two for Biden, Georgia plus one for Biden this morning, they definitely show um, what the national electorate is thinking at this point. And it's critical to mention, we're 100 days out. So these sentiments, they change as the wind blows. Right now, there is no doubt, and, and this is sort of the bottom line um, point of our first episode, 100 days out. And again, these assessments will change as we count you down to Election Day. We plan to do an episode every 10 days, 100 days out, 90, 80, 70, and so on. But at this point, Emmanuel, there's no doubt when you look at these numbers, and these numbers do not lie, that Joe Biden is winning the race for president right now. Again, this is not to say Joe Biden is going to win Texas or or win the state of Georgia. These are States that Democrats have targeted for a long time, crept closer maybe, but never really hit that ultimate glass ceiling where they're able to break through and win the states. But if he's within spitting distance, which Georgia would indicate, several polls have him ahead, he has a shot. Texas, he has a shot to maybe 
look, they lost by 8 to 10 points last time in Texas. Could he get within 5 points? Very realistic with the demographic shifts. So these are indications of how the country is thinking, and these are states that could show you how the rest will unfold. And the morning consult poll today, among likely voters, which is an important thing to recognize, these are voters who are going to go to the polls, not the registered voter polls or the adult polls or simply a sample of America. Up eight points in Pennsylvania. Michigan, a slew of polls has had them at eight to ten points up. Wisconsin, which is supposed to be more competitive than maybe Michigan or Pennsylvania, more likely to stay in Donald Trump's column. Joe Biden's riding high, up six to eight points. And you mentioned 100 days out. That's an important thing to note. Races tend to tighten as we get closer, especially when you have conventions, although virtual this year, you have debates. It's not a typical election year, of course, in many ways, but it's not typical in the sense that mail-in balloting is a, is a huge factor this year. And that in these pivotal swing states is going to start 45, 50 days from now. Donald Trump does not have as much time as you would think to write this ship, to get his polling numbers back on the right track. And that's an important thing to note. The days are numbered for him to get within spitting distance of Biden. And we're excited to bring you a special episode on mail-in ballots. We want to cover this issue and how it relates to voter turnout. The more people who come out to vote, the more confident Democrats are in November. And we also are going to launch into a conversation about the strategy of these two campaigns in a future episode. Next episode, we want to break down exactly how these campaigns um, view the landscape, the political landscape. How can they best benefit from crises in America as morbid as that sounds? That is politics. And the Biden campaign will try to establish that the, the Trump presidency has been a failure with these crises. And the president will also certainly um, fall back on some of his race rhetoric, which has um, which has launched him to this point in his political career. But we want to turn to our segment down the ballot. This is downtime. Emmanuel, tell us about some of the down ballot races that we want to look at from East Coast to West Coast and how that's going to affect the political power landscape uh, in the next two or four years. And Chris, important to note, this is one of the key reasons Joe Biden is in this spot as a presumptive Democratic nominee. He helps the down ballot races. Democrats were worried about someone like Bernie Sanders securing the nomination and that it would negatively impact these races. Now, as all forecasts currently stand, the Democrats are very likely to hold the House, the Senate up for grabs. 53-47 Republican advantage right now, just in terms of how important votes go on the Senate floor. There are some independents in the Senate, but 53-47 is the split right now in favor of the Republicans. So from a Democrat perspective, they're trying to pick up three seats at the very least, get to the 50-vote threshold, and then if Joe Biden were to win the presidency, the vice president would be the deciding vote. Six key races right now that could shift the power structure in Washington. In Alabama, Democratic incumbent Doug Jones is facing off against Tommy Tuberville. This is likely the most vulnerable seat for the Democrats. Jones, of course, in the party, anti-Trump, voted to convict Trump in the impeachment hearings. Trump is on the ballot in a very red state this November. So that's the most vulnerable race for the Democratic Party and potential pickup 
for the Republican Party. U.S. Senate race in Georgia. David Perdue going up against a crowded Democratic field. It will be John Ossoff, the rising star in the party, 33 years old, lost a closely contested race a couple of years ago. Should be an intriguing one right now that leans Republican. In Colorado, this is the most vulnerable Republican race. Cory Gardner in a blue state in November. Joe Biden likely to carry it by 9 to 12 points, going up against the former governor, John Hickenlooper. Something to watch could tilt the scales in Washington. In North Carolina, Tom Tillis is facing off against Cal Cunningham. Plenty of important races in North Carolina, including the presidency, gubernatorial race, Senate race. That could shift things at the end of the day. And saving the best for last, two of the most heavily funded races, Maine, Arizona. Susan Collins plateaued at 67% of the vote in 2014. There weren't many challengers to her as of late. This time, it is going to be a challenge. Maine House Speaker Sarah Gideon mounting a threat to take that seat. It's a complete toss-up right now. In Arizona, Martha McSally, appointed to the seat a year ago, lost her last race. The first Republican to lose a Senate race in Arizona since 1988, going up against a very, very charismatic candidate, well-liked former astronaut, Husband of former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who's very respected, went through that tragic incident with the gunshot, nearly lost her life. And that is a very, very compelling race that currently has Mark Kelly riding high in a state that is up for grabs in November at the presidential level. So those are six key races, and Maine and Arizona are going to garner a lot of attention. Those are the two that we're looking at, Emmanuel. And if Democrats get both of those seats back and maybe a Colorado, and just one more, a North Carolina, assuming they lose Alabama. So that gives them four in their column, and they lose one. They net three seats. They get the Senate back. And if they win the presidency, we assume they hold the House. Of course, that means full power in Washington, which is enormous opportunity for them in a potential Joe Biden first two years. Now, you look at Maine, you look at Sarah Gideon challenging Susan Collins. I I think this is the enamoring statistic, which is that since 1995, in the 1995-96 Congress, you had 14 New England Republicans sitting in that Congress. 14. How many are in the 116th Congress? One. There's just one. And her name is Susan Collins. She's the United States Senator from the state of Maine. She is the last remaining of a breed of Republicans from New England, and that is a dying breed. That That is a type of American voter, the traditional GOP New England voter, that is absolutely fed up with the political, with the GOP of Donald Trump. And so what does that mean for a Susan Collins who's trying to walk that line between being a steady Republican, but also not being cozy with the president whom Her own party, and now we're talking about the Maine GOP, not the national GOP. Her own party in Maine uh, is not, um, are not much fans of Donald Trump. Now, the same can be said about the Colorado GOP, where you have Cory Gardner being challenged by John Hickenlooper, as you mentioned. How does he walk that line? Um, Do Republican voters who don't approve of Donald Trump find that Cory Gardner has been too loyal to the president? They may well find that. And the same goes finally for Martha McSally in Arizona, where she's being challenged by a very formidable Mark Kelly in a state that is trending blue, 
um, if not by the nature of its body politic, by the fact that two of its, well, let's say its most prominent um, politician, uh, certainly in the last decade or so, that being John McCain, um, was sort of a notorious enemy of this administration. And there are Arizona Republican voters who certainly would side with the late John McCain, uh, the late senator and war hero over the current president. I think that's a factor. It's walking that line, as you mentioned, Chris. How do you associate with Donald Trump? Donald Trump can help you in certain ways, and he can also hurt you in certain ways. And some of them have decided to cozy up. Some of them have tried to distance, but you distance at the risk of being called out because Donald Trump will not hold any punches if you are disloyal within his own party. So I think that's been the key theme to watch is how they interpret the polling. How are they acting based on where they stand in these races? And the Republicans are going to have to make a choice as we get closer to November 3rd, if things do not start turning for the better in terms of the internal polling. And certainly we find a GOP that is pivoting a bit at the, at least at the presidential level, we find the president perhaps changing his tone, trying to, for as much as he might contrive a campaign strategy, trying to find his lane. Joe Biden's lane is clear and it is to oppose um, the president and his job and voters right now agree with the former vice president. We'll leave it there for our first episode of The Swing 2020. For Emmanuel Barbari, I'm Chris Bocci. We thank you for listening uh, wherever we have met you and whenever we have met you. We hope that you continue to stay with us. Uh, we'll be back with you for 90 days on the campaign trail, 90 days until that big first Tuesday of November. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time on The Swing 2020.